Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? That is a quote from Henry David Thoreau's Walden, and it speaks to something that has become quite top of mind for us these days, empathy. The concept of empathy is finally sort of enjoying some well-deserved attention in the zeitgeist at the moment, because I think we're seeing the limits of a black and white sort of right-wrong view of the world. We're seeing the limits of seeing the world just through our own eyes. It seems we crave connection and understanding right now, not through judgment and confrontation, but through the lens of understanding, through the lens of empathy. My guest today is Maria Ross, author of The Empathy Edge, Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success, a playbook for brands, leaders, and teams. In it, Maria shares some fantastic stories from executives change makers and leaders of all stripes, proving that empathy is not only good for us at a personal level, but that it's also great for business. The Empathy Edge is full of practical tips, insights, and opportunities to exercise empathy. And I am thrilled to bring you this conversation with Maria Ross. Congratulations on the book. I love it. Super, super helpful. And what I wanted to start with is just to ask you what made you write a book about empathy? Why empathy? Why now? Yeah, it's funny. So the book started in 2016. And as you know, I'm a brand strategist. And I was, there was a couple of different things that came together in a perfect storm around that time. Number one was we had this little thing called a presidential election. And regardless of your anyone's political persuasion, I was seeing a lot of behavior that was really scaring me about the world. This ostracizing of the other, this, you know, fear and prejudice and all and just horrible behavior. And at the time my son was two and a half. So here I am reading books to him from preschool about words are not for hurting and da da da. And I was like, why? Like, why do I bother? Because look at our, you know, look at leadership right now. So I thought there's got to be a better way. And I was not the only one feeling this way. So I was talking to clients. I was talking to colleagues who were like, what can we do? Like, we feel all this compassion and this empathy, but how do we put it into action? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just a website designer. I'm just a coach. I'm just a speaker. Like, do we all have to go join the Peace Corps to make Mm -hmm. a difference, right? So I started down this path of like, what can we do within our own sphere of influence, Mm. which our biggest one is work because we spend the bulk of our time at work. And so this idea of if we can't master empathy in the place where we spend the bulk of our time, how are we ever going to change society? Yeah. But there was that thread. But the other interesting thing was I was starting to hear from my corporate clients. So like tech companies and, you know, CEOs over the last the year or so before that, they wanted to start presenting a brand to the world that was empathetic. And they had never used those words before in yeah. consulting with me. And I was like, this is kind of an interesting trend. Like it meant something different to all of them, whether it meant approachable or compassionate or conversational or a good corporate citizen, but it was coming up more and more beyond just, we want our brand to be seen as innovative and disruptive and you know all the other jargon. So those worlds combined, and um, I was doing some work with a strengths coach at the time, and he pointed me in the direction of, you need to be talking about empathy. And so that's when I started researching the book and luckily found all this information that was out there about the data and the research that proved that empathy was not just good for society, it was good for business. Amazing. So that's why I wrote it. 
I think it's so ironic that, you know, as companies become more evolved towards a more empathetic way of doing business, interacting with each other, politics is like spinning in the opposite direction. Once again, the private sector will save us all. Hopefully, hopefully. I love that. I love that. And I actually, you know, I was on Instagram just before this talking to my followers and I was like, you know, I'm talking to Maria Ross, she's got this book you know, let me know if you have any questions. And one of the gals that follows me said, God, you know, I did a strength finder way back in the day and I had empathy really high up on the list, but I was one of the few women in the group. And the guys were like, oh, sister, you need to push empathy way down the list. You're way too nice. And now she says it's becoming more of an asset, but she's having to work to bring it back. What is your sense of leadership teams and how they're now starting to value what was traditionally seen as a more feminine characteristic? Yeah, it's funny. That's exactly what happened to me too. It came up in my top five on the Strengths Finder as well. And I was like, oh, maybe I need to be talking about this. So a couple things there. Number one is when I started talking to my male executive friends, very enlightened, very emotionally intelligent male executive friends about this book, they were secretly so glad I was writing it. And a few of them even said they were going to leave copies anonymously on the desks of their people on their exec team that wow. needed needed to hear it, right? So that was very telling. It was this it was a secret desire of a lot of men in the workplace to have this conversation. And I've done talks at sales conferences mm-hmm. about how to increase your empathy because it actually helps you be a more successful salesperson. Again, right. data, research, right? Hard skill. <laughs> You'll make more money. You'll make more money. <laughs> exactly, right? And so, um, and I've had, and I had guys come up to me after the event and say, I'm so glad you're, we're finally talking about this in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. But I think because now, you know, this is what I tried to do with the book was curate all this data and research that's out there and put it into kind of like, here's the case for why we should care about this as a company. Mm -hmm. And for purely selfish reasons, if that's what gets you there to understand that it's going to drive innovation or drive your stock price or drive customer word of mouth, like fine, whatever gets you there, because it's the same thing with empathy. If you adopt an empathetic mindset, purely because you think it's going to drive profits, you're still adopting an empathetic mindset. You're still going to see the world differently. You're going to be transformed and your employees are going to benefit. Your customers are going to benefit. So, you know, whatever I kind of want to, it's being empathetic to meet people where they are. And so I think that's why now we're starting to see the conversation go forward of now these skeptical leaders have proof that it has bottom line results. And I think also, which is a point you make in the book as well, is that audiences, regardless whether that's internal audiences, employees, or external audiences and their brand, how they feel about a brand, mm-hmm. so much of it has to do with what that brand stands for, what that company, what the values really are. And in fact, I'm curious to hear your reaction. You know, one of the things I went mute on social media for a week mm-hmm. recently because of just the injustice and of my eyes getting opened to how white centric my worldview has been. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where I think of myself as an incredibly empathetic person until I started following more people of color and I was watching my Instagram feed change, the things they're talking about, the way they see issues that I realized I was so not empathetic to that point of view. And then, so I'm getting 
all these new perspectives. My little heart is growing because I'm like, oh my God, this is so great. I've been so closed off and now I'm seeing a much bigger world and I'm learning from these new teachers. But then I would see a brand post a Black Lives Matter and just get worked because the community was like, we know what Black Lives Matter looks like and you're not it. Like you have not been representing that ethos and you can't just drop, uh, you know, just because it's cool to have empathy for people of color in this country doesn't mean you could just do it and we believe you. So I'm curious what your reaction was to all that. Well, it's funny because I just finished a blog post before this call that is not published yet about the fact that people are expecting brands to take a stand right now. We used to separate that very much, right? And I think because of what you said earlier, there's a little bit of a lack of leadership. So people are looking to, well, who else has influence in our society? Oh, big companies and brands. So what are they doing? What are they saying? How are they changing the game, right? Mm -hmm. And so these big brands can't be tone deaf right now and they can't not say anything, but you know, they also can't do the wrong thing and simply do something for optics. So I think they have to, you know, and this is what I've been saying about brand for years is that you can't just slap a coat of brand paint on your business and expect it to stick. A brand starts from the inside out. And so if you really are committed to the social injustice issues, to furthering people of color, supporting diversity, you have to walk the talk. And that is more than just a post on Instagram. That's what are you doing with your executive team? What are you doing with your board? How are your hiring practices going to change? Are you taking an honest look at your hiring practices and saying, oh, wow, even down to where are we recruiting new yeah. from? Are they just from the white colleges? Like yep. maybe we should have a more diverse pool where we recruit from. So those are the things that have to go along with the really cool Instagram posts that Black Lives Matter. It's That's Black it. Lives Matter and here's what our company's doing about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So getting back to the question of empathy and selling it as a concept inside corporate America or inside our teams, what do you say to, so somebody like, people like you and I, we might skew overly, you know, we might over-rotate on empathy and compassion and, and feeling as highly sensitive people. But I work with, as I'm sure you do, I work with a ton of people who are good-hearted humans but that literally lack empathy. Like it's almost like a muscle that they've never worked before or it's a chip missing for their brain. I mean, it's we're surrounded by people. So what I liked about your book and what I'm hoping you can do is what are some steps that people that struggle with finding empathy can take as they develop this muscle? Because you're right, it's a non-negotiable now. You got to have it. Right. And I think also this goes back to like, what do we mean when we're talking about empathy? Because that's the confusion. And I think that's what's made corporate America shy away from it for so long. So empathy is not just being nice. Mm -hmm. It's not caving in. It's not even agreeing with somebody. It's just a mindset of how you look at a situation through someone else's perspective. And then the kicker is that what action do you take as a result of the information that you've gathered? which could be a very different action. It could just be the same action, but with a different approach. Yeah. It could be the same action, but with different communication requirements around it mm-hmm. because you're thinking about the other person's point of view. So this idea of, you know, it's either empathy or competition. It's empathy or ambition. They coexist because empathy is not just a feeling. It's a mode. I like to think of it as a mode of information gathering. And so that's Ooh, why- I love that. Yeah. I love that. How is gathering information different when you're doing it through an empathy mindset? 
I think because you're doing it from outside your own head. So it's not about here's my agenda and why I'm right and what I have to get done in this meeting or what I have to get done as part of my job and my goals. It's looking at the people around you, especially as a leader, and getting to know the context of what those people's lives and careers are like. What's going to motivate you know, Bronwyn versus Maria? That's going to be two very different things depending on where they're coming from. And I, it's my job as a leader to suss that out. Yeah. And it's my job as a leader to determine what's the best way Bronwyn likes me to communicate with her versus yeah. Maria. And it's a lot of work and it should be because you're the leader, right? Yeah. People yeah. say like, oh, it's, I just want to treat everybody the same. It's like, well, well but you need to understand their context. And it's like, whenever I hear that there's, it takes too long or it's too much work, it's like, well, so does turnover. So does <laughs> like, it's like people, when they say, I don't have time to meditate, it's like Gabby Bernstein says, well, do you have time to feel like shit? You know, like, exactly. <laughs> I want to do this, right? Exactly. And the research shows that when you are an empathetic leader and you create an empathetic culture, you boost productivity, you boost innovation, you boost talent retention. So all the things, because when people feel seen, heard, and understood, they do their best work. And so if you want them doing a half-assed job, then yes, treat them like crap. And maybe you'll get compliance but you're not going to get success. You're not going to get market leadership that way. That's right. One of the sections that I really appreciated was the section on understanding and working with millennials. As a crusty Gen Xer, I actually, it's so funny. I, I really actually feel such an affinity and a love for millennials because they take no shit. You know what I mean? Like it's the millennial women that have changed the conversation around sexual assault and consent. And if it weren't for them, things would be a lot different. So I right. love they're so committed to social justice. They don't start businesses. They start socially conscious businesses. Like there's so much to love about that mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. And yet they have a different set of demands. Speak to, talk about the sort of section on the book on millennials. I love this part. And Gen Z is even better coming behind them. They're even more about this. And it's funny because I've recently this week been looking at research about how millennials and Gen Z are viewing brands as a result of, well, first it was COVID and then what's going on with all the protests and everything that's going on with social injustice. And they are demanding that brands speak up and treat their employees well. And they're saying, we're not going, you know, like Sephora, I think there was a report that they fired, you know, thousands of people in a 10 minute Zoom call and there's millennials and Gen Z going, I'm not going to shop there anymore Wow! because of the way that they're treating their employees. Like when I was that age, I don't remember thinking that way. Oh, God. <laughs> so, it was like, thank you, may I please have another? I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't expect to get paid for internship. Like we were, no, no we just didn't know any better. And we didn't. And I love that they're, you know, and that's the thing is they get all this flack all the time, but good on them for saying, Hey, you know what? I spend the bulk of my time at work. I want it to be like a second family. I want to be nurtured. I want to be mentored. And then I want to give, you know, in some cases they say they'll work more hours. They'll work for less pay. Not that we want that trend, but that's what happens when you create an empathetic environment. And that's the workforce and the environment that those talent generations are demanding companies that don't respond are going to die because the best talent is going to go somewhere else. That's right. It's so funny when you read that, when I read that section, we're looking for almost like a second family. (laughs) It makes me laugh because one of the things about, I think the difference between our generation and their generation is the millennials and those younger than them were much more likely to grow up in these families that were nurturing, that were very hands-on. Like, I don't know about you, but when I grew up in the seventies and eighties, it was free range. Like 
Nobody helps me with anything. And so I would never dream of saying, I want a company that's like a second family. It's like, oh no, I'm good. I got one. I don't need more than one. But with millennials, that family means nurturing, support, guidance. Just in interviewing, I just interviewed for a bunch of interns. So many of them talk about their family in their interview, which I never would have done. Right. And I think there's a good and a bad to that because the reality is, you know, business is business. At the end of the day, layoffs happen, things like that happen. So how do you walk that line of nurturing mm-hmm. without coddling, of supporting without indulging? Like right. where does empathy end and something else begin? I think, again, it has to go back to like empathy as a mindset of gathering information. And again, it could be that you end up having to deliver the news or the decision that you have to deliver that might not be popular, but how do you do it, right? Are you thinking about what those people need when you make that decision? I have often said in my talks that one of my most empathetic bosses was someone who laid off the entire marketing team. Now, was that something we wanted him to do? No, but the way that he did it was what endeared him to us and took care of us. And again, it was nurturing us as people, but nurturing doesn't mean doing the work for you. That's right. It doesn't mean letting you off the hook. It means supporting you so you can do your best work and shine, mm-hmm. so that you can be empowered, so that you can be productive and come up with innovative ideas. And so mm-hmm. I think for too long, this, there's been this black and white of like, if I'm nurturing, I'm going to be seen as soft. Yeah. And then my team won't be competitive. But there's a way to be a leader that uses empathy as the input mechanism so that the output is everything you want to succeed. Yeah, I love that. What sometimes I find when I work with companies, I find that often teams are sort of performing for each other in presentations and trying to impress the higher-ups on their team versus mm-hmm. really empathizing with the client across the table because the way the hierarchy set up that, you know, they're like, well, I know which side my bread is buttered. And it's really my guy on my side that controls my career, not this client in this moment. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, when you think about empathy from that standpoint, what do you tell teams that are just kind of obsessed with their own thinking and their own product marketing ideas when it's not checked really hard against actual external customer needs or whatever. Like how do you well, look that? well that's the mark of an empathetic brand. So I've worked with companies, you know, with brand strategy clients who are saying, you know, our brand's very empathetic. And I'm like, mm-hmm. are you? Are you really <laughs> like you guys had no customer data for me when I walked into this? Like mm-hmm. when was the last time you talked to your customers about what they wanted? Right. And we all lose it. I go back to my book all the time, especially dealing with this pandemic and trying to be empathetic with my son and my husband. Oh my but you know, we forget it. We get in that situation where we fall in love with our own voices and we forget that we're there to serve somebody else. So even if, you know, you have the perfect product marketing launch plan, yeah, is it good for your customers? Is it good for your prospects? Is it what they actually need? And when was the last time you got out there and talked to them? You know, whether it was running surveys or actually just getting on the phone, you know, yeah. every CEO should be required to eat their own dog food at some point. And every airline CEO should be forced to fly coach and call the customer service line once a quarter. Like these are things we forget to do because we're in the business of doing our business. Right. And so that's where it comes down. You could have the most empathetic internal team environment, 
Yeah. But you have to have empathy for your customers as well. And talk, talk about Steve Jobs. I love that example you use in the book. Tell the story of Steve Jobs and the customer email. Yeah. So, you know, Steve Jobs does not have the best reputation as being an no, empathetic no, boss. No, not an easy guy to work for. Not an easy guy. And I spoke with a woman, Ellen Petrilians, who worked with him very early on. She was one of the first product evangelists for Apple. And she said that was what she actually learned from him is that regardless of how he treated internal employees, he was rapidly devoted to customer feedback. And that's how he landed on that special sauce of this is not about us selling a product. We're selling aspirations. Like what does our customer want to do with our products? What does he or she hope to achieve? And that was such new thinking back then in terms of brand thinking or product thinking was but no, didn't we, he literally like if you were a customer, you could literally email Steve at yeah, apple.com. I believe so. I believe so. But from what my source that I talked to, she said, you know, he used to pour over customer emails because they didn't have social media in the early eighties. Right, right. She actually put in place one of the first customer feedback Usenet things, you know, mm-hmm. but they would send emails in and he would pour through them. And that's how he got to know them as people, like not just what they did with the product, but like, it's sort of like, let's put that aside. What are you actually trying to do? Yeah. What's your goal? And then that's why he was able to deliver products that people didn't even know they needed. Mm -hmm. They weren't even able to express it. Like I didn't know I needed an iPod before an iPod came out. Like I was fine with my Walkman. Like I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, that's where the innovation comes in. Yeah. And, and talk to me about, there was two concepts that I really appreciated. One of the pieces of advice you give for people that are trying to learn empathy when it doesn't come naturally to them is just the idea of being present. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about why presence is kind of a portal, kind of a port key for being more empathetic. Yeah. I actually, by design, listed that as the first habit of empathetic leaders because it all starts with presence. If you are not in the moment, and out of your own head, you do not have any space in your brain and in your mind for another person's point of view. You're too stuck in your own thoughts, worries, insecurities, yeah. agendas, whatever. But unless you're in the moment and focused on the person that you're talking to and you're, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with active listening. Yes, exactly. You can't do active listening, as you know, as someone who meditates regularly, if you're all up in here. That's right. You've got to center your body. You've got to center your mind and whatever that means to you. That's why in the book, I said, however you need to practice presence, if it's a walk, if it's knitting, if it's meditation, it doesn't have to be like two weeks at an ashram in India. It can be 10 minutes a day or, you know, some deep breathing before an important meeting or a performance review that might get a little testy. Yeah. You can open your heart and your mind to what's in front of you. And that's where you have empathy in the situation. You have fluency in the situation. And you can empathy fluency. That's empathy fluency. Exactly. Because empathy is about reacting to the person in front of you and what they need. And if you're not present, you won't see it. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I just gave a talk about active listening this morning and there's a construct of listening called level three listening, which level one is when you're tuning in and out through the lens of self. Level two is when you're focused on the words, but still through the lens of self. And level three is when you're listening to the words and the emotion behind the words through the lens of other. Yes. And for me, that's really easy to do when conversations are going great. 
super easy. The minute the tension gets ratcheted up, I find that it gets harder. And one of the ways I like to come back to a place of presence and empathy is to use a mantra. And I noticed that you use, you recommended using a mantra too. Mine is connection, not perfection. Like Mm -hmm. I'm willing to walk away from an agenda if it means connecting with somebody and meeting their needs. But talk about like how phrases can help bring us back to a place of empathy. I think whatever, and that's the thing, whatever works for you and your own personal style. For me, I'm heavy on the deep breathing thing and taking mm-hmm. a breath because otherwise I get up there and I'm like, yeah. you know, my voice gets high. My son recognizes it now. That's so funny. But, you know, for me, it's like, I got to take the breath and get into my body. Yeah. Whatever that thing is that jolts you back into the present moment. And for many people, it is having a mantra that you repeat to yourself Yeah. and say, you know, in this moment, and for me, it's the shut up and listen, shut up and listen, shut up yeah. and listen, right? And not about listening so I have a chance to jump in with what I want to say, but really listening and taking that in. Yeah. And so however that works for you is what you really need to do to get present. And that's why it's really great to not be prescriptive about that and let people play with what works the best for them. I agree. And I also do find that it's hard to be empathetic to someone if you feel superior to them. Or if you feel inferior to them, like Mm -hmm. part of that practice is believing in the fundamental enoughness of everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, ego definitely kills empathy because (laughs) if you're already putting yourself in a place of judgment of I am better than you because of my title or of my whatever, then you're already not being open and humble. That's why some of the leaders I spoke to in the book, like Dave Belay and other leaders in the book, talk about this fact of servant leadership. And that as a leader, I'm here to support you doing your best work. That requires humility. And that's the opposite of ego. I love that things like servant leadership and empathy are having such a moment right now. Like it's a cause for hope. Yes. And Um, I hate that a pandemic was what kind of brought us to this conversation, but the fact that we're all working out of our homes, like the facade of the work self and the personal self is gone. Gone. I had a conversation the other day. It was hilarious with a CEO of a company mm-hmm. who's having a Zoom call with me. We've never met. And he's in a guest room that looked like purple flowers threw up all over it. <laughs> Clearly his wife had decorated this room. And he's just sort of like, this is what I got. Here I am. Like no pretense. And yeah. that's so awesome because now we are being vulnerable. We are like, oh, you're dealing with three kids at home that you have to homeschool. Oh, you're dealing with an aging parent. Oh, you're... I can see that you're sick, even though we had to have this meeting today and it's on Zoom or whatever it is. You've stripped away that facade. And that's always my goal with this book was like, we have to remember we're human beings at work. That's right. And if anything, the pandemic and the quarantine has accelerated that, which if there's anything good that has come out of it, it's been that. We're seeing each other as colleagues, as humans. Yeah, I agree. I totally, totally agree. The other concept I wanted you to talk about was, you know, you in the book, you talk about advice for companies trying to create a more empathic culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the people you interviewed talked about an empathy nudge. Explain what an empathy nudge <laughs> Yeah. So there's a a consultant in the UK named Belinda Palmer, and she runs a business called the Empathy Business, helping businesses and leaders become more empathetic. She does an empathy index each year of the world's most empathetic companies. But she talks about the fact that, you know, what scares people the most about creating an empathetic culture is that it's going to be this big, complicated, long transformation project, right? 
Like where, how the heck are we going to turn this ship around? And we've all been at each other's throats and competitive. Like how are we all of a sudden going to be like collaborating well with each other? And so she says it can start with little things. And this is the point about you can start in your own sphere of influence, whether it's like the titles you give people or what you call certain departments or certain language that you use. One of the examples she gave me was like, Maybe people in your organization don't like that you're using sports analogies all the time to talk about how the team get, you know, maybe they're just, they're not into that. And it's so far removed from their experience, whatever it is. Another example she gave was that there was a company in that she worked with in Europe where that headquarters was called head office and it automatically implied like superiority. It implied more importance than the divisional offices. So they changed the name to support hub. And it was such a minor thing, right? But the field offices said we instantly could feel a difference in the interactions. Oh my God, that's fascinating. Yeah. So little things can mean a lot. That's amazing. What was the, as you were out interviewing and gathering information, what was the most surprising example of where empathy really made a difference. Like, give us another one of those kinds of stories. Oh my gosh, I love the story about REI. And it was less that I was surprised and more super excited that there was actual proof that my theory for years had credence, right? (laughs) So this whole idea of REI, the sports equipment company, the recreation company, they started this hashtag opt outside years ago, where as you probably know, they close on Black Friday. And they're a retail, let me like a retail outlet that closes on Black Friday, right? And this was not, this is what I mean by the empathy veneer. This was not a group of executives in a boardroom going, how can we appear like we care about our customers and our employees? I know, let's do this thing and we'll get all this free press and we'll get all these new members. No, it started very organically from an employee discussion about what the holidays meant to the brand, what the brand meant to the holidays, what the holidays meant to the brand. And these employees were saying, well, the holidays now are, they're commercialized, they're stressful, like nobody wants to work on Black Friday. <laughs> like yeah. everyone's miserable, they're away from their families. They're, it brings out the worst in people. It brings like out the worst in people. Way. So they're like, you know, and our whole mission is about getting people outside. Mm-hmm. So someone piped up with, what if we just closed on Black Friday? And they were like, oh, we could never do that. And leadership was like, I don't know, could we? <gasps> And the surprising thing, the thing that was like my, oh my God moment when I interviewed Ben Steele from REI was I said, how hard of a sell was that internally? And he said, surprisingly, because we're so aligned on our mission of supporting the outdoors and getting people outside, and we're so committed to our employees and our members, it was actually not that hard of a sell. Like people knew it was going to be a big risk. The rewards they've reaped year over year from that decision. And that's what I mean by that's genuine empathy. That's not manufactured empathy. And how did they know that it was a success? Like what were some of the metrics where they were like, oh, that was a good call? Oh my gosh. The number of press mentions they got, the fact that their social media hashtag went viral, the fact that their sales went up, have gone up year over year. They got more members joining the co-op year over year. So, I mean, it was just... I remember Ben's quote was like, there's been nothing but goodness from this thing that we did, this crazy idea that we had. And I love that it was not a marketing scheme. It was not cooked up in a boardroom. It was real and it was genuine. That's amazing. And have you seen any interesting examples of it play out during COVID-19? 
Yeah, I've actually seen, you know, ironically, we're on Zoom right now. Yeah, <laughs> but, right. But, you know, Zoom communications has really shined bright. And there's so many people who are new to Zoom that think this was all, you know, some of them are like, oh, they just took advantage of the right time, right place. But again, this was not an accident that they are being seen as an empathetic brand. Number one, they're staying true to their mission of connecting people. That's what they do. That's what their product does, right? Mm -hmm. But the CEO founded the company because he left his prior employer who he felt was not empathetic enough to the needs of their users for their video conference platform. So here's a guy who starts a company out of empathy, out of more empathy for his customers. And that's the ethos he's created. I spoke to my Zoom rep. Yeah. way early on. And I was like, you guys are doing, you know, free K through 12 access during oh, this whole thing. Totally and he was like, and he goes, you know, this is not new from our CEO. This is the culture we have here. Incredible. And he goes, and, and now it's just, people are noticing that yeah, this is our culture. I got to work with their women's group, women at zoom. I gave a talk a few months ago and they are the kindest smartest people. And I'm, you know, listen, I'm sure there's wonderful people at WebEx and all the other, of course, yeah, of course, else. but you're absolutely right. It's part of who, what makes them, them. And I, right. I think that's, I think that's an amazing example. So Maria, just to wrap this up, we are now in day, whatever of this altered state called post COVID-19, 532, yeah. 500 and whatever, <laughs> um, you know, the empathy issue is, in some ways, easier to talk about in a business context with clients at work, but we still live with the same people we've been living with for the past 8 million days. What is one piece of advice or helpful thing that I can take out of this home office and into the kitchen industrial complex, which is where I'm headed next, to make dinner? What is one thing I can do to bring greater empathy to my role as CEO of this house? I'm still working on that one. No, I, well, what's been working well for me is exactly what we talked about in the heart of this, which was about practicing presence. And I have done a lot of deep breathing in recent days where, you know, I am trying to take that step back out of where I am at the moment yeah. and think about where my husband is and my son is and approach the situation from that lens of empathy. And this is the important thing. And you know, this as a parent, again, you still set your limits you still have your boundaries, yeah. but you're doing it from a place of like, I get it. I get why you're having a tantrum right now. You're really frustrated. You haven't seen your friends in three months and I'm asking you to do yet another lesson. And I get it, dude. Like I'm with you and I'm here with you. Why don't we take a few deep breaths together? Yeah. And that works so much better for me than screaming back. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. I love that. And it's always the simplest most problems can be solved by deep breathing and presence, really. Yeah. And a it hot is. shower and a glass of wine. But yeah. And a hot shower and a glass of wine. Thank <laughs> you. Now I just got to figure out what the hell I'm feeding these people. Exactly. Thank you so much. Congrats again on the Thank book. you. And I'm sure this will not be the last time we speak. I hope not. Awesome. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>